Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 358. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 358 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning engineer, mixer, and producer Robert Carranza, who's worked with Jack Johnson, Los Lobos, Mars Volta, Ozo Motley, and a host of many others. Robert comes to us as a recommendation from our good friend, former WCA guest, Mr. Cesar Mejia. Very excited to have you hear this conversation. Robert Carranza, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about communication. I'm pretty sure that I've talked about this at some point in the podcast, in a rant or maybe as a side note to something, but I'm sure there's evidence of it out there somewhere in the show. But at the risk of repeating myself, I'm going to go ahead and do it again. Communication is at the heart of how we deal with our clients, whether it's phone calls, emails, texts, video calls, whatever. Communication and how we communicate is absolutely key to the success or the failure of a project. If you're a poor communicator, you'll find the gig dries up. If you communicate too much, you also might find that the gig dries up. But it's also the style of communication that can affect the gig. I've often talked about on this show how those close to me think that I have a tendency to communicate in a rather harsh fashion sometimes, when in reality, I have no intention of communicating that way. Just sometimes I, I sound harsh. Now, I think with you all, I'm on my best behavior, but you know, you don't live with me either, right? <laughs> so part of this is directed more at my younger listeners who haven't really experienced a lot, because I think my more experienced and older listeners should know better, but everybody can get something out of it. Look, at the heart of it, when somebody sends you a message, responding in a reasonable amount of time is just common sense and it's just good business. You may not have the answer to what it is they're looking for. So even a simple reply just saying, hey, I got your message, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. Of course, in a reasonable amount of time. Waiting too long is just ridiculous in this day and age. Look, the world moves quick. Projects move quick, decisions get made, schedules get made. And if you are a cog in the wheel, then it really becomes a problem for the people on the other end. They want to know if you're in or you're out. And hey, if you don't know, like I said, you just got to let them know. Let me look at the schedule. I'll get right back to you. Also, communication style is also key. And some folks like to communicate in a shorthand kind of way. And, and unless you know the client really well, I would advise you to always be very clear in what you intend. Most of us do not have managers. So if you're negotiating on your behalf, being very clear about that, being very clear about the timeline. When it comes to details, communicating in full sentences is highly recommended. Save the shorthand stuff for those that are really close to you. Now here's one pet peeve that I have. It's fine to have a footer in an email that has your title or whatever it is you wanna call yourself and maybe a couple extra things like a link to a website. But sometimes people fill up those email footers with, you know, too many graphics and just a, 
huge list of things. And I don't know how anybody out there listening who is a lawyer would feel about this, but that whole, this message was intended for blah, blah, blah kind of things. Those, all the legalese that people stuff at the end of, a, of an email. Uh, sometimes I'm like, what, what do we need all that for? Really? Can we just like cut to the chase here? I may be off my rocker there and, and maybe that stuff is legally needed when it comes to, you know, some problem that shows up. Another thing to keep in mind, too, is something that our, our friend, uh, former WCA guest Piper Payne had said on a music expo panel that I was on with her. She said something to the effect of, if you've got a ridiculous sounding email, you know, like Jojo loves dogs at gmail.com or something kind of silly. People don't remember that. Just be straight ahead with it. Give them your name, at, and whatever the service provider is. Sometimes people perceive ridiculous email addresses as that, ridiculous. And some people actually look at it and go, I don't want to work with this person. They have a stupid email address or whatever. Some people are just extra harsh in that way, and it may affect you. At the risk of sounding harsh, like I said before, you know, leave the ridiculous names for some other task. Come up with an email address that is just simple, to the point, pro, skip the ridiculousness. I know we all think we're clever sometimes, but sometimes just cutting to the chase and getting to the point really is nice when you're communicating with others and they can easily remember your email address. Here's a super corner case situation. My father was having some heart surgery prior to COVID and my mom and I were trying to communicate about some stuff and we discovered once we got in the same room that she was actually using some feature of iOS that was only sending would only send messages to other iPhone users. I'm not exactly sure what that feature is because I'm an Android user when it comes to phones. And uh, she showed me a list of messages she sent me and was complaining, how come you never answer my messages? And I said, well, let's take a look at that. And we figured it out very quickly. You got to make sure iOS users that your messages are going out to the world, not just other iOS users. I don't know if that was a bug or if that was a feature, but it's a, it's a ridiculous feature, I have to admit, from Apple that has to go. If you want to communicate with everybody, then that would get in the way. So keep an eye out for that. Do a test with a friend who's got an Android phone if you are an iOS user. Ah, yes, this is the big one. And this, I realize now... I've talked about this particular thing before. I don't know if it was in a rant. When you get mixed revisions from clients, sometimes they are the most poorly written things. And unfortunately, bands don't always get it right. They love to just put everybody's comments in and you'll see the drummer's comments conflicting with the guitarist's comments. You know how it goes. So if you're confused or if you read it and you're pissed off, take a deep breath and call them or make arrangements to talk with them somehow verbally, whether it's a phone call, a video call, or in person. Set it up so you can actually communicate directly with the, the people who are requesting the revisions because you can clarify a lot. I had a client email me one time some mixed revisions and I just about blew my top when I read this stuff. First off, it came within 20 minutes of sending the mix. You know, you spend however many hours you spend on a mix and then somebody listens to it once and has a gut reaction and they send you these notes that are just like you know i can't hear the bass drum or, the, or, or i can't hear the bass guitar and they're listening on the most you know they're listening on their phone but you don't know that so when you can i highly recommend 
speaking with the person instead of texting or emailing with the person so that you can get rid of any confusion and you can find out exactly what's going on and probably make better mix revisions as a result. And you'll also like cool down a bit too, because sometimes, as I've said, how you communicate with the client can also be a problem. And that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Robert Carranza here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we have to thank our mutual friend, former WCA guest, Cesar Mejia, for uh, sending me a message saying that he could hook us up, and I'm really glad that he could. So, Cesar, thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you, Cesar. Yeah, Cesar's great. One of the few guys who uh, follow through <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this business. He really does. He really does. He's, yeah. he's probably blushing right now as he's hearing this. 
really appreciate his friendship. He's a great guy. Yeah, love hanging out with him. So cheers to you, Caesar. Cheers to Caesar. Let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? And what was the role of music or audio uh, like in your life as a kid or as a teenager or as a young adult? I'm born and raised in Los Angeles in a little city called Montebello. Just music was just a thing in my family that my mom used to play music 24-7. You would hear she'd play Santana, she'd play everything, Duke Ellington, everything you could possibly imagine. So there was always music in my house. And then my older brothers always played music, and they had such a vast difference in taste. So not only did you get it from this, you got it from that one, you got it from that one. One was listening to Journey, one was listening to punk rock, and the other one was listening to oldies. It was just that thing in the house of music being around. And by the time I was a kid, you know, I started playing drums when I was like, I don't know, 10, something like that. By the time I was 12 years old, we, were, we started a band. You, know, you can do whatever you want with music. Mm-hmm. And coming from like East LA and, and Montebello and, and there, there was a certain thing of people were just kind of like, oh, those are things that other people do. And it was interesting. But uh, eventually we just kind of got a band together and, you know, started playing music. That was our thing. But my biggest kick was just through, through family. Just they, they played such different variety of music. Even, even now in my career, you know, a lot of people talk to me about, like, you do such a weird scope of bands, you know, from Marilyn Manson to Jack Johnson to Los Lobos and Jarocho music, uh, stuff from Brazil. And to me, it's just music, you know, something I... I uh, I've had such different uh, experiences with different music through my brothers and friends. I don't know. I just don't see any difference in it. So that's how I started. Having that background, would you say from your perspective today, music that's presented to us, is it, do you think it's more segmented? Is it, it you know, because my recollection of radio growing up was such a, a broad mixture. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely marketed music differently now, especially through like, these playlists that people create. And the first recollection of real music that I, I remember like going, oh, what is this? Was, you know, the first time I heard Black Sabbath. My uncle played it for me. You know, he was smoking a joint in his room. <laughs> didn't know what that smell was, you know. <laughs> he turned all the lights off. I mean, it's very vivid to me. I, shit you not. I mean, uh, I must have been five, six. And hearing Sabbath for the first time, it just blew me away. And then my other brother was listening to Led Zeppelin. And that was the kind of thing where I think as you get older, the recommendations from friends changes. Uh, before it was just like, I got this record. You got to hear what this is. And now it's not the same anymore. It's kind of like we're being fed a little bit what we're supposed to like. Mm-hmm. As an aggregator, it's just a, it's a different thing. It's like, um, I still have friends that will go like, dude, have you heard of this record? I mean, looking at younger people, and it's just not done that way anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah, I definitely have that, you know, memory of friends talking about particular records. I had a friend who lived across the street from me that was, he was like, you listen to too much metal. You got to listen to Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. I remember the first time someone turned me on to uh, Captain Beefheart, you know, and was like, what is this? Or Tom Waits. Oh, you yeah. Know? And I think that happens now to a certain... Actually, I, I take that back a little bit. I see a little bit happening with some of the younger kids because being in this business, you work with all varieties of ages. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just finished a record with a band called The Star Crawlers, and they're all 21, around that age, and, and they listen to great music. 
And I'm not trying to be an old guy going like, oh, only the great stuff happened in the past. No, that's not me at all. I love all music. I love, you know, I love anything that's a good song. It has to be a great song. And even a good pop song, you know, I, I don't get mad of it. I'm like, good on you for doing such a great job with something, you know. I've seen how some of these pop songs are made and I'm like, wow. It's not necessarily how I enjoy watching people make music, but I, under- I appreciate the outcome. And somebody's yeah. appreciating it too, because they're doing well. The trouble that I run into is that some of the music coming out today emotionally doesn't hit me at all. I, it's just like, it just, it's flat. Performance is flat and it's super duper predictable. And it, and yeah. it just bums me out. I think, I think popular music at this time and age is, and it's a good reference. You said flat, because I think a lot of it lacks dynamic range. And, you know, I'm not going to get on this high horse and go like, oh, everyone's overcompressing and blah, blah, blah. But there is a certain tone that people are presenting now that, um, you know, I mean, it's just the funniest thing to hear choruses when they get, they only get louder because there's more bass in them. Yeah. They only turn, they turn the bass up in the choruses and you're like, but dynamically it didn't change. It just feels like it changed. And that's not great to me. As a someone who makes records and does that, it's like that's not interesting to me. But um, yeah, it, it, it's definitely a different response to. Uh, I think everyone's trying to be the next thing that no one's ever heard before, and that's 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 a hard. That's songwriting, not sonics. Yeah. Do you remember at what age the act of recording or the process of it came onto your radar? Oh, I was thirteen. Yeah, I mean, I, it was the first four track, first four track I got. Didn't actually know what I was doing with it, but you know who does <laughs> when you when you get a four track. It was a friend's four track, and it wasn't until I was maybe a couple years later that I got my own from my from my uh, girlfriend at the time, and who's now my wife. And I still have it. It's a Tascam Porta 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 One. I cherish that thing. It really did put a different perspective of what you could do with things and bouncing things around and making room for stuff. And at the time, you know, again, we were pretty young and a guy named Gonzo uh, Sandoval in a band called Armored Saint, who was local to El Sereno and, and local to LA, had taken us in and recorded our demos for us. And I was like, you're a drummer. You're not an engineer, you know? And, and he was like, nah, you don't have to be an engineer to do this, you know? And it was just like a light bulb. And then the first time we actually went into a studio and to record out in the downtown at this like old brewery, again, getting a first taste of it at 12 and 13 and then getting into a studio by the time we were like 15, mm. I was done. That I didn't care about drumming as much as I did about where the microphones had to be. <laughs> so that's my first, first uh, thing with, with, with recording was um, doing our demos in a garage. <laughs> When did you act on it in a, in a, in a realistic way? Probably where I was around 16. A friend of mine told me about these uh, UCLA extension classes hmm. that they used to do back in the day. And I mean, I started, I started around in the mid eighties. So I went to this uh, UCLA extension class for the weekend and I walked up to Bruce Sweetine who was there and at that time. Bruce was the guy. I mean, he's still the guy, but you can't, you know, the records he was making at the time were just undeniable. I asked him, is this where you learn how to do this? And he was like, kid, you got to do it on the floor. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> and he was like, 
you can only learn so much in a school. Doing it is where you're going to get your experience. And I started knocking on every studio door that I could find. There was a couple of places that were like, cool, come in. And here's the broom. We need you to answer the phone. We need you to make coffee. And that was my assisting engineering start. And I took it as serious as it possibly gets. I mean, I, I almost quit high school to do it. But I, I ended up going, okay, let me slow down here. It's a, it's a commitment, you know. I graduated and, you know, did my thing. But right after that, I was, I, was, I was done. And I started working locally as an assistant engineer, you know, around town. But I think what I found my niche being was I used to fill in for people when they were killing their seconds. So <laughs> when their seconds needed a break, they knew they could call me and I'd, I'd come in and fill in. So I worked at multiple studios. I didn't work at one place specifically. I was kind of like an floating, a floating assistant. How did people know about you? You know, it's funny. I did this project. I don't remember the guy's name. Got English guy. And uh, he was here and I was working at Cherokee Studios. And I was also working at another studio uh, at, the, at the same time, at Track Record. And he noticed that I was at both studios. And he was like, what are you doing here? I go, well, I, I fill in here too. And he was like, oh, so I could request you if I work. And I was like, yeah, I guess. And then it started happening where people started going, hey, you know this guy, this kid Robert, as an assistant, he kind of works over here and he works over there. And, you know, so people were like, uh, I don't know. And then passed the number around. And then I started working around multiple studios. I went from Stag Street to Track, uh, Lion Share, Cherokee, Red Zone that Candace uh, used to, I don't know if you ever heard of Red Zone in LA, but no. Red Zone was like uh, Candace who manages uh, cello, I'm, or East West, sorry, <laughs> bad habits. I mean, I've known Candace for 30 years. And, and you know, the various other women in this business, like Paula, Jane Scobie, Melanie Denton, and uh, I mean, just Siobhan and all the women who were like studio managers at the time i just kind of made friends with them and we're still friends with all of them they uh kind of were like oh we like this kid come hmm. and work in those days no cell phones no internet pagers pagers <laughs> right right <laughs> pagers and and uh and, and before you got your pager were people just calling you know you're probably living at home still yeah 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 so it was your house. mom like who are these strangers calling you know because of the band at the time, at, when we were younger, people called us a lot. Mm. You know, we were kind of a band in LA that were like coming off of the the grunge. Uh, I mean, the the kind of like metal. You know, it's like I I grew up in LA, so it's like, you know, there were certain places you went and you got to you hang out with Metallica, you hang out with Armored Saint, you hang out with those guys, and those guys were doing stuff. You know that you know again. Certain bands, certain metal bands were doing really well and other ones weren't. And we were just a couple of years behind those guys. But, you know, it wasn't weird for a manager to call your house and go like, oh, I need to talk to your son. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, How long did you float around in the, the second world or the assistant world before somebody said, hey, it's time for you to take over? It was maybe three or four years. I got a break. I was assist. I was not even assisting at Cherokee at the time. I was just a runner, and they had this uh, break for the holiday. It was this 
the wildest of things because Paul Rothschild had a session. Uh, oh. You know, Paul Rothschild from the you know the doors and you know, and uh, one of the assistants was supposed to come in and he didn't make it. The funny part was that I was paging him. I was paging everyone furiously. You know, I was just supposed to sit there and take calls. You know, and he didn't show up. Paul walks in with the tape under his arm and he's like, where's the assistant? And I was like, I can't find him. And I, again, I was working at other places as an assistant already, but you know, at Cherokee, they had like this kind of like, you have to mop the floors first and then you have to make the coffee and then you finally get to shadow and then you finally get to assist. So he was really pissed, which is understandable. So I walked in and he goes, you know how to line the machine? I was like, yeah, I line the machine uh, put a F- M49 up and, you know, he didn't do much. He was just doing a vocal, but, you know, he was impressed and I got the vocal done, did the comping and it was done and it was a couple of hours of work and, you know, the phones were ringing and I just let them ring and come when everyone's back in uh, the shop, I got, I got called to the, the boardroom upstairs <laughs> and, he, you know, here are all the Rob brothers sitting there and they fired me. No shit. Yeah, they fired me. And um, which is not, you know, everyone got fired from Cherokee at some point. <laughs> but they fired me. And then uh, Paul heard about it and was like, he was like, that's bullshit. You did a really good job and blah, blah, blah. And Paul got me my first pain gig. That's how I started. That's how I made my leap. And even then, you know, it's like I wasn't ready for it. But this is something that you learn as you go. You're training as an assistant. You work with so many different people. And again, during those few years, um, you know, miking a snare drum is as boring as fuck. You know, <laughs> all the stuff you learn about making records is easy when you're sitting with great people and great engineers and great producers to show you how you let the musician do it. All you need to do is be there to capture it. The hard part is people and how to work with people. That's where, the, that's where the real trick comes in. And I think that's the stuff that I learned on the job. Again, the other stuff was easy. When you're sitting in a room with someone who made the records that you're like, wow, that's amazing. And you see it and you see that this next guy does the same thing. And then the guy after that does the same thing and so on and so forth. And then one guy comes up and does something a little different. And you're like, oh, cool. You know, you kind of pick and choose and you build up this library of like how you think you should be doing things. And then all of a sudden... Someone comes in and does something completely different, and you're like, whoa, that's great too. So you kind of learn on the job. It is amazing how easy it really is when you have great players. The, the, the effort you have to exert just is so minimized. Yeah. And then when, you, sure. when you work with people who just aren't really good at what they do, and you really got to struggle. And that's when you get into, well, maybe if I move the mic two inches to the left, it's like, no, actually, maybe if I just got a different drummer. Yeah. I mean, every great lesson I've learned in the studio has been from a musician. I mean, everyone. It's it, it's never failed me. You know, I did a, a couple of records with Los Lobos. And, um, you know, that's like a whole other school of learning. Not just because of some of the greatness they've done, but just on how they do it. Mm-hmm. They're playing, their performances, the nuances of what they do. And I was a little intimidated, you know, when the first time I walked in the room with them. And then they it was one of those things where I think they realized that, oh, uh, let him do his thing. 
you know, they let me do my thing. It's pretty amazing what you learn from musicians. I mean, it really is. I've worked with a lot of different people. I've, you know, I'm coming over 30 years in this business now. Yeah. And um, we had a late passing Mike Finnegan. I don't know if you know who Mike Finnegan was, but he was great. He played with Hendrix on Experience, and he's a keyboard singer, a B3 player singer. And man, just watching that guy sing and play. I did a session where I worked with him, and I was putting the mic on him. He goes, oh, no, 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 not too close, not too close. I can sing. And I was like, okay. So I backed it off a little bit. Kind of got the preamp where I needed to, and then all of a sudden he started fucking singing. It was like, whoa, it just, you know, and yeah. I was like, whoa, let's back it off more. He can sing. You know, it's those little things. It's it's tiny, tiny, tiny details. What drives me nuts is when I see people getting microphones ready before the musicians even ready, mm. because you're in, you're invading their space. Let them get comfortable. Let them do their thing their machinations that happen for them when they get into a room. Yeah. And then I always go like, are you good? You know, they're like, oh, I'm great. I'm going to put a microphone up. You just let me know if I'm in your way. You know, I'll adjust to you. And they're like, oh, great, great. And, you know, sometimes you get a fiddle player or someone, they're like, you know, I need a little bit more room, you know. It's like, yeah, okay, cool. I'll back it off a little more, you know. So it's just those little things, you know. When we're talking about Los Lobos in particular, the things that you would learn from them, would you ask or would they volunteer? Or like, I'm trying to imagine a scenario of you in the room with them and what that experience is. What's, what are they telling you? I'll tell you what a great one was. So I did live at the Fillmore with them. We recorded a couple of shows at the Fillmore and uh, we brought in the old Cleetons Clearwater remote truck and it had like this uh, API Domitio in it. Fantastic sounding console. So we did two nights there and everything went great. I come back to LA and uh, the guys are off on tour and I'm, I'm at um, O'Henry, oh, the old O'Henry, uh, uh, which is like, uh, they had like this massive API in it, 88 input Steve Furlot API. And I'm mixing the, the live show. And, you know, I'm about five days in, you know, mm-hmm. and then the guys finally get to hear something. And then the guys get on the phone and they're like, hey, did you listen to the did you listen to the rough mix you made in the truck? And I was like, no, I kind of just didn't want that to influence me. And then the guys were like, take a listen to it and then call us back. I listened to it. I was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) told the assistant, pull, pull everything, pull everything. And that was my hubris of me thinking that, you know, this is what I'm going to present to the band when the picture was already there. I just, I just literally lined the faders back up to zero and then made some t- small adjustments, and it was there. You know, that's the kind of stuff that you learn from a musician. Were you just over-processing and over-mixing? Over of course, of course. Yeah. You know, again, wanting to represent what I thought the thing should sound like, where the musician was like, no, no, this is what we, you know, you already got it in the truck. I just had to be reminded of that. And, and it's, it's little tiny things like that over and over again from different people. Yeah, it's not one specific thing where it's something, but it's it's tiny things like that that you're like, okay, I get it. I get it. I see where um, I went off the rails a little bit. You know, again, and it's you trying to impress somebody, you know? And it's like, if you're there in the room with them, you've already impressed them. Do you ever find that you get in your own way with your, oh, I have a template or oh, I'm trying this new thing or I'm doing this thing that worked on one thing and then you try to apply it to others and it gets in the way. In other words, 
do you do you keep arriving at like okay i just need to let the music be the music and it's just like you know pull, pull everything out take the plugins off let's let's just get a good balance first here yeah i my template is based on laziness i only have certain things in a template that i'm like i just don't want to be have to pull the menu down and constantly <laughs> text that so i just have a template where i pull stuff in what's being fed to it is com- can be completely different like you know say i'll have a a, devil, a level lock and on a on a drum kit right or something like that and then all of a sudden i'm like oh, i want the level lock so i pull it in but it also has this 1176 on it or whatever and you know oh it ended up on the vocal sounds great that's that's the thing yeah but you it, I think for I think most people now are chasing a sound that doesn't exist and they're chasing something that they hear based on influence from other people's records. I've never been influenced uh that way, sort of say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll listen to a record and go, that sounds fantastic, you know, but I'm never like I wonder how they got that sound. Whatever their impression of the record is is their impression of it. Most of the time, we're getting paid for our opinion and our taste. If someone wanted to hire Bob Clearmountain, they hire Bob Clearmountain. They're not going to get a shitty impression of me trying to be Bob Clearmountain. I don't want to do that. Right. You know? So, and, and what I mean by that, I, I'm not, you know, I love Bob. I mean, he's one of the, you know, all-time greats. Oh, yeah. You know, there's plenty of them. Um, so, you know, I, I've gotten things where people have hired me and said, like, oh, we really like, you know, uh, Tom Lord Algie's, uh song that this is what it is. And I'm like, well, you should hire Tom, you know, Tom's, I'm sure Tom's ready to do some work, you know? <laughs> and then you got to read between the tea leaves of that as well. You know, what that is for people, for artists, you know, cause they're really, they're listening to something they they love the way that something sounds and it's how we get work. You know, they listen to your stuff and we get work from that. But there's some people that are uh, always chasing somebody else's sound, yeah. you know? I, I think that's a mistake. I think you have to just be what you do and 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 live and die by it. That's for sure. I 100% agree. And I bet many people who are hearing you say that right now agree with you. And yet we live in this world now where it's uh, YouTube video and, and paid services, just almost too much information. Yeah. A lot of bad information. Everything used to be kind of protected and guarded, and now it's just like the floodgates have opened, and it's uh, it's crazy how much information is out there about the process. I have my own little thing about that because, you know, I have a career based on the graciousness of other people who let me ask questions, who let me be in the room with them and ask, you know, the stupidest questions because I didn't know. I was an assistant. I was learning and, you know, there were some people, I mean, God, I mean, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but I remember working with some people that, you know, the first thing they'd walk in and go like, don't ask me any questions, just watch. And you're like, okay. <laughs> you know, they're so protective about what they were doing, you know. And right now with, we're living in the information world where everything you want to know is pretty, pretty out there. You know, someone has a YouTube channel and that's great. I, I don't, there's no secrets to be had. There really isn't. And some people might be like, well, you know, you're giving the sink away of what you do. I went, no, I'm not because they're not me. You know, what I do is based on what I do. Now, yeah, again, we, we sit around and we go like, okay, you know, everybody has Pro Tools, everybody has Logic or everyone has Ableton, but everyone's not making great songs. 
everyone's not making great productions. Yeah. It goes so much further than just the gear and the techniques. You obviously have a way of handling yourself from a personal perspective that attracts people to want to work with you. Yeah. And that is hard to teach in a YouTube video. It was funny. I Many years ago, with I worked with Dave Jordan, who's done, you know, I don't know if you know Dave Jordan, but, you know, Chains Addiction. Er, Alice you know, in Chains. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, Dave told me one day, we were mixing this record, um, it's a, a band I worked with called Dig, uh, early 90s. And uh, he was like, a monkey can make a record. And he goes, but a monkey can't make it sound like a record. And it stuck with me for a long time because I get I got exactly what he was saying. You know, at that time, Dave was making some interesting records that sonically were just, you know, very unusual and very unique to him. And yeah, and uh, I remember mixing. I remember the, the drummer walking in when we were when they were mixing the record, and he was like, "Why are you putting samples on my shit?" And um, he goes like, "We spent like." thousands of dollars from the drum doctor renting drums for you to put samples. And he was like, okay, just, we'll, we'll talk about this later. Like he wasn't even having it. And then later when the band, when the guy walks in and he was like, oh, fucking sounds great. He was like, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And that, those were early days of using samples. It was the four at oh, 16. The, the four at 16. Okay. So probably on like, uh, oh, the social distortion record, uh, I can't remember the name of the record. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. I think I can hear it on yeah. the snare drum for sure. Yeah. But, you know, the feel and the attitude comes across. I don't think anybody else, you know, in the in the civilian world would go, "Well, that's a, you know, that's a mighty fine snare sample there." Civilians, I mean, I mean, I think about this a lot, man, because I remember the impression the Black Sabbath record made on me or the Led Zeppelin record made on me. I didn't care what it sounded like. It had nothing to do with what the sound was. It had to do with how it made me feel. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out.
what are some of the personal things that other engineers coming up should be aware of that you've experienced as far as how to work with people, disagreements or strange and odd personalities as many, you know, there are many producers out there that just have yeah. odd personalities. So what, what would you say on the human side of things, how to handle a lot of this as an engineer? Yeah, I think ultimately be professional. Um, if you're new and you're barely starting, you're not going to get it. You're not. It takes years, decades to understand people. And, and even now, it's not even you understand them. You learn to accept who they are and what they do. But someone who's starting off, it's very hard. I, I would say the best thing to do is listen. What artists are doing, they're telling a story. Either they're writing a song based on, okay, I'm trying to write a hit song or something, but you know, most of the artists I work with, they're, they're, they're deeply into telling a story about something. And there's a lot of pain in some of those stories. And there's a lot of laughter and love. And uh, I mean, the, the gamut of emotion is just everywhere. You got to learn how to listen to these people. Sometimes even the happiest songs that are being written are about some of the saddest things everyone's ever experienced. You know, there's this big lens, you know, it's like I, I look at this, uh, this, this body of things we do as engineers and we're here to kind of interpret what someone's not able to do on their own, but there's some people who can do it on their own and they sit in the four track and, you know, play a little something by themselves and all that emotion comes through because they're not in the way of other people. Or there's not an engineer in the way. I mean, that's why it's important for people to understand, you know, what our job is. We're trying to help someone paint a picture, but we're not necessarily uh, the brushes. Maybe we're just holding the easel steady so that they can paint on it. And mm. I think that's, that's an important lesson to learn. Now, that's the artist side of things. Now, what about the producer side of things? When you have producer, producer engineers coming in and... You know, like the the folks coming in saying, "Don't ask me any questions. Just watch." Guys like that, or or, or when you want to be a producer, it's such a weird word to say. I always consider myself more of a collaborator. It's an old terminology that we've kind of fallen into. Mm -hmm. That means that you're the guy in charge. You're the person who's driving the ship, and that's antiquated to me because I saw those guys. I didn't want to be those guys. I wanted to be the guys where I, you know, it's funny to watch some producers walk in and when the artists would be like, oh, fuck, you know, and I've, I've worked with some of those producers who are very famous, you know, and watch them stroke their own ego, even do stuff based on that. They're just in a shitty mood that day. I, I didn't get into this business to do that. I, I got into to collaborate with people. I love people. It's great when you can collaborate with people because the pressure's off. If your idea is best, you win. Everyone wins. You know, when people walk out of the studio and they feel like they've did, done something that uh, people are going to enjoy, or, or at least not even people, but themselves. I think if you satisfy yourself first, that translates to other people. So producers who come in who kind of are difficult or uh, easy and, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of, again, it's all emotion. It's all so funny to just recognize that all this is basically human nature. Well, let's talk about the business end of it. If somebody came to you and said, I want to do this beyond go try something else, what would your advice be? Yeah, I've had that a few times with my mom calling me and going like, hey, uh, this uh, my friend's son is, uh... I'm honest with them. Yeah. When I was starting, this was like everything to me. 
I read every EQ, record production magazine, mix magazine, anything I could get my hands on just to see what was going on. Because again, you know, coming from um, East LA and and kind of out of the the skirts of all Hollywood, uh, you know, there's not readily information out there like there is now. So, you know, you'd have to make your trip to go buy some magazines and find out what's going on in the trades. And it needs to be your water. And that's it. It's the thirst. It's a quench. It's it's everything that satisfies that. Because um, I've had a couple of artists who've come to me and they're like, you know, uh, yeah, I, I play music and I, you know, I do this. And then, you know, I, you know, we we're friends, you know, we, we haven't did anything together. And then I get on like, you know, some of their social media and I see that, you know, they're like doing photography and they're doing all this other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, man, you're not going to do it. This has to be everything. It literally has to be everything. It's a lifestyle. It's not something you do on the weekends. It's not something you, you know, come home from work and you're like, oh, I'm going to devote, I'm going to record my friend's band in the garage. I mean, you can, you can, but in this day, you're behind 50 other guys who are doing the same thing. Mm. And it's not like it was the same back then or, you know, 30 years ago when you got in, because there was still a line of people doing it, but it weeded itself out. Because I know some people who I started with that were like, you know, I just was like, you don't want this. You don't want to do this. You like the idea of doing this. And they're all gone. None of them have, you know, I don't know what my career is. It's like, you know, I've worked with artists. I've made records. I've sold some million, some, a few million records with some artists and stuff. And you, you do that kind of thing. But is that what success is? I don't know. I think for success for me has always been like, I've been able to do what I wanted to do. And maybe I'm just an old guy now <laughs> <laughs> talking about what it was or how how to how I think it was supposed to be because it seems to be like or maybe I'm, I you know I couldn't multitask <laughs> very well but I, I I think I'm right because I do see some artists who do have all these other things in their life but they don't focus on what good songwriting is and then that kind of takes you down a different hole where you're like you did you didn't devote enough time to your craft you know, I'm well, still devoting my life to my craft. Yeah. You know, I have to admit, you know, I was, when we started the call audience, uh, Robert said that he actually listens to the show. And, you know, I was assumed nobody listens to the show. So here you are at the level that you're at and yet you're still listening to a show like mine to find out what everybody else is doing and how, yeah. how things are happening. So that, that really it's backs that up what you're saying. That, yeah, it's that. Sorry, I mean, it's that quench for knowledge. Yeah, it's like I want to know what your take is on things. I want to know what uh, Caesar's take on things are. I want to know what my peers are thinking about what's going on in this business. I mean, you know, it's not again. It's that thing of like I need information to make better decisions on my career. That's everybody involved in this career. You know. Yeah. How have you handled the financial end of it? Well, I've been lucky. Uh, you know, I say that I've done some records that have done very well, and I'm I've shared in the production sides of things and mixing sides of things, and you know, um, but like everybody else, you know, no one teaches you about money and how to handle it, right? Or how to deal with it, you know. So there's been some hard knocks, which you have to figure out. I'm I, I'm married, I've got three kids, and you know, paid for college and all that kind of stuff, and I'm fine, but I could have been better. 10, 20 years ago when I started really making money and putting it away better and doing other things with it. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard lesson to learn. Um, 
don't cry for me by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. Right. You know, it, it it is an important thing that I think our education system fails. Completely, at. absolutely. Speaking to our industry, I mean, we can we can teach about signal flow and the gear and how to get gigs and how to behave in the gigs. But you said it. I mean, there's not a real direct source of folks like us as far as, you know, teaching us money management skills, because God knows there's just a million distractions along the way. It's like, oh, I could buy more gear or I could buy drugs or I could, you know, overspend here and I could buy this car. But, you know, saving it or investing it or, you know, treating it with a level of respect to grow it for the future is something that lacks greatly in our world. Yeah. This business is feast or famine a lot of the time. I think if you get some money, put it away, buy some real estate. It's a solid investment. Having the number, uh, you know, number two eleven seventy six that's ever made, who cares? <laughs> you know, again, my earlier years, I did 22 space racks of everything. You know, I still have all this shit and I use it mostly for tracking now. And even when I'm going to do records in different places, I'm never carding it anywhere anymore. I just go like, here, have make sure you have this, 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 and this that I want. I don't care anymore. It's like, I've learned to make records with less. That's really the takeaway that I've gotten after all these years of making records where I thought I had to have this, I had to that. No, I had to have great musicians and a decent room and a good listening environment. Job done. Rev F of 1176 does not make a better song. <laughs> There's a quote right there. <laughs> you know, yeah, it doesn't. You're right. I mean, that in itself is, is, a, is a subject that could be deeply explored and obsessed about, you know, in the esoteric nature of and, and mysticism around certain pieces of gear. But you're right. It's like, given the choice, I'd much rather have a better song to work on yeah. than a crap song and some crazy cool piece of gear. That's just not going to make the difference. We tend to obsess on the obscure. I mean, you know, it's like everyone, you know, everyone has this thing, you know, the Beatles. It's like, believe me, I'm a huge Beatles fan. I remember the first time I heard the Beatles, you know, my mom played, was playing it, you know. But what we sometimes fail to recognize is it's not the sound of the Beatles that we love. It's the songs of the Beatles that we love and how good they were at doing it so many times. You know, they wrote great songs, not just one or two, but they wrote great songs a lot and the vast amount that they did. As far as production goes, the average person who doesn't listen to production, they just love the songs. And that's exactly what I think we forget at times. Yeah, because if those songs had been bad, yeah, yeah, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be going, oh, you remember that band? Oh, yeah. Oh, those were some interesting recordings, but God, those songs sucked. Yeah, I have this funny analogy about the Beatles of uh, that I always say, you know, the Beatles were a boy band when they started. You know, they were like, you know, in sync. Yeah. And they went they went from being in sync to Radiohead. <laughs> of the day, yeah, for sure. Of the day, yeah, you know. And and they did that by uh challenging themselves and they did that by being great songwriters. I I know I harp on the songwriting so much, but it does. It's 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 what we gravitate to. That connection with someone's story. Yeah. We, th- that story is, not to get religious here, but it's like, you know, when you get to the Bible, th- that story has outlasted kingdoms, centuries, sand, stone. That's a, you know, 
that story is will be here once we're long gone. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Wow, you are just really dropping all kinds of wisdom here on me. I'm uh, I'm taking it all in. So there's there's definitely a time and place for, you know, will will certain songs just die in the vine and no one cares anymore after so many years? Yeah, of course. But you know, the story of what a song is and what it can be is you know uh, an important one. You know, I I worked with this group one time. Uh, I won't say the name because people would know and it would be a little awkward. But you know, the singer was couldn't get through a song one day and she was crying and I was like. She was saying this phrase over and over in one of the songs. And I was like, are you okay? Like she was breaking down and she was like, yeah, I go, you can't get through that chorus. What's up? And she was like, well, that's what I was saying. I was, I was being raped. Oh my God. And you, my, my jaw hit the floor. And that's, you know, that's when you start realizing how important what you're doing with an artist is, you know, that, that story to her, she's telling it. And the responsibility you have to completely help or tell it. Believe me, I, I I love gear. I own a you know a lot of it. You know, over the years, I don't think it's the most important thing to making records. I think it's a, a part of it. Uh, it helps you do a certain kind of record. But again, that story of what that is to certain people that's that's huge. It's yeah, everything. Empathy se- seems more important. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a big thing for people to learn too. Again, again, I'm sorry, go back around again. But yeah, for someone young who's learning, understand the importance of what you're doing. You know, it could be it could be more than you think. Because if I wouldn't have asked that question, I would have never have known. But I could see that she had was having a rough time with it, and it changed everything. Hmm. You know, super important. Yeah. Looking back across your career, are there any key mentors that stick out to you? Oh, so many. Ed Cherney was one of them. Just as a friend, I never worked worked for an assistant as him. As, you know, the Lake Gus Dungeon, so many. I, I, You know, there's so many people who were just kind of like, again, people even who probably don't even know they had influence on me just by watching them in the studio as an assistant. I know people learn differently now. They take classes. They, um, I know there's a certain cooth to people being in the room with people and you learn people skills that way. That, Teaching you how gang staging is in, in a school is not the same thing. And again, that's how people learn. I don't want to sound like an old guy, but you know, it, it just it, there's certain tactical things that happen when you're in the room with somebody that um, I think people can make records now and people can learn however they want to learn. And I've heard people, I've worked with artists who made stuff in their bedroom that we cannot recreate. It's 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 almost perfect the way it was. And we basically took it and made it sound a little better, but they did it all on their own. And that was great. And I think that's an amazing, uh, an amazing place. But I think we need to slow down sometimes and take stock in what we're doing and not just be on that fucking uh, rabbit or I mean, that, that wheel of like, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Yeah. Knocking it out, knocking it out, knocking it out. And you know what? I know people who've had success with that for sure. And that's a good way for them to do what they do, you know? So the process of making records or doing this, being in this business, it changes. It's, it's a constant change. But I, what I have noticed in the past 10 years is that it hasn't changed much that now it's, uh, it's, it's, it's readily available for everyone to learn how to do. 
sometimes I just think some people need to stop and think, do I need to do this? As I get older, that sets in more and more. I'm, I'm yeah. working with some a group right now that I worked with many years ago, and they call me back just to say, you know what? We think we need to bring you back into the fold because of, of our past. And they've done a bunch of work on their own. And yeah. a lot of opinions got involved. And long story short, I, I just said, hey, you know what? This thing you did on your own during COVID, this is really cool. This is really special. Yeah. I think it's that, you know, what, tell me if you agree with me or not, but as you get older, you, you just start to really, you slow down and you, you listen more closely and your ego doesn't get as involved because you're just like, hmm, hmm, there's something good here. I, I, how do I treat this with the respect that it deserves instead of, yeah. oh yeah, let me squeeze you into my schedule and get my money and get you, you know, through, through the process. It's a weird thing because your desire and your ego are, are something that fuck with you all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, your desire for success, your desire for money, your desire, it's kind of, um, it kind of messes with your head a little bit and how, how kind of rational decisions you'll make. Um, again, I've been very fortunate to work with some great artists who have been sharing the wealth and that's allowed me to make better decisions on things I want to do and what I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. But we always feel like we're imposters. That imposter syndrome that we that you've spoke out about many times in the past podcasts is very real. And I don't care who you are, everyone feels that way. Everyone feels like you're not good enough. It's funny, you know, again, you said, you know, they they came back to you and, you know, you were like, okay, we've done some past work, but you were honest with them enough to say, like, the stuff you did on your own was great. That's because your imposter syndrome is waning. It just doesn't matter anymore. When you're in a position where you don't have to take the gig and you just give your honest opinion and go, this is super cool. Why don't we just recut the vocals and chop up the arrangement a little differently? And I think that the outcome will be really excellent. Yeah. And the, and you know, in my case, the band was like, you've said what so many other people have told us. So we think that your opinion has merit here for sure. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, great. (laughs) I've had, I had one artist who was like, uh, you know, he was so, I mean, he's, he's a great kid and um, he's so caught up in like thinking that we can, I'm the only one who could do stuff with him. And I was like, no, there's a lot of good people who do great work out there. He was like, oh yeah, but you know, the, the, the way it sounds. And I was like, that's, I go, there's many people who can do that too. You know, and it's not that I don't want to work with you. I'm just super busy. And I don't want you to sit around waiting for me because I can't give you the time that you actually need at the moment. And, you know, that's as honest as you can possibly be, you know, and I love the guy and he, you know, I'm just like, dude, there's a lot of people who do what I do and they do it very well, you know, send the stuff over to me. I'll give you my opinion. I'll give you my critique. And, and it's flattering for someone like that to, to feel that way for you. And it, you know, of course it rubs your ego a little bit, but <laughs> I'm all, I'm done with all that stuff. I've been done with all that stuff for decade more. You know, it's, it's like, uh, I'm a kid who's making records for a living. And I appreciate what that is. And I appreciate um, anyone even giving me the time to think that I had what I have to say matters. Would you agree that in your time, in your career, that you've gone through all the different permutations of how you've handled yourself, how you've handled other people and your business and, and being an audio professional. Now you've arrived at this kind of moment of looking at the bigger picture. You're mature enough to have the 30,000 foot view and go, oh yeah, okay, that's important. That's not important. This is how I should 
treat what I'm being given here? There's definitely that for sure. And it definitely has come over time. And, you know, I work, most of the people I work with, they're repeat records. We've done more than one or two records together. I always give them the out. I always tell them like, there's other people who are good out there too. (laughs) I'm not trying to like not work, but you know, I just want to let people have the option. Like you don't owe me anything. Like, you know, you're still my friend just because you want to work with somebody else or do other things. It's all good. It's like, you know, I want you to, to make the best record or the best music you need to make for yourself. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm the one who has to do it. And that has come over time. Yeah. Figuring that out. Like I say, great maturity to arrive at that, that viewpoint and selflessness, because I know a lot of people are always worried that the phone's not going to ring. I had a great example of a friend uh, who I, I uh, uh, he was an assistant. I love the guy and I've given, I've thrown work at him. You know, I've given him work. Cause again, it happened to me where people threw work at me. So I think you got to do the same thing for other people. You got to help that person kick up to his next level of career. Cause you know that he's, he's competent and able to do it. So I gave him this gig that I, that I couldn't do. I was in New York and uh, he calls me up and goes, Hey man, he goes, thanks for the gig. But they constantly just say like, well, Robert doesn't do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a fucking bummer. Like, so I got on the phone. I called the artist. I was like, hey, man, let him do what he has to do. It's going to be great. And they were like, what? They're like, well, we are. I'm like, yeah, but you keep on comparing shit to me that I, the way I do it. Let him do his thing, man. I go, is this not sounding good? They're like, oh, it sounds great. I'm like, yeah, stop reminding him that, you know. That he's not they're like, That he's not me. You know, and it was just so funny because again, it's like they stopped doing it. And he was like, Did you tell him something? I was like, Yeah, I had a conversation with him. Don't worry about it. Just do the gig, man. You're having a good time. And he was like, You having fun? You know, it was like, I'm I'm fucking loving it. I'm like, that's all that matters. Have yeah. a good time. <laughs> You've got three kids and you're married. You know where I'm going with this because I, I always mm-hmm. ask it. Uh the, the how have you handled it? How have you handled the work life balance with the family over the years? I mean, I don't know if I'm a good dad. You gotta ask my kids that. I think they love me, you know. I think my wife loves me. Have I been around all the time? No. Have I missed some important things? Yes. I think in the terms of regret after a certain amount of time, as you get older, you have those horse blinders on because you're just like, I'm going down this way. I'm going down this way, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of regret with with, with the family in terms of, uh, you know, when my son was youngest, you know, I was, this was a young man trying to make his way in this world. And I think he got the worst of it because I was out of town a lot and doing records, but I wrote to him, you know, I kept a little journal and wrote to him all the time so he could understand what dad was doing when he was not around. Now he has this journal of like me talking to him about like, you know, where I was and what I was doing and how I missed him. And, uh, but again, dad was out trying to make a living so that I could support the family. Uh, This job is a weird, weird, man. It's like you go out and make records, you know, and I've traveled the world doing it. I've been very fortunate. But that's been me doing it, not the family. You know, there's been moments when I'm in Paris and I'm on the phone and I'm talking to my wife and she's like, oh, yeah, you're in Paris. Great for you. Hope you're having fun. Yeah. And and then I go like, yeah, but she's learned over the years that I'm in Paris, but I could be at Sunset Sound here, leaving at 10 in the morning, working till 10 at night, coming home, going straight to bed or coming home and doing some edits that I had thought in my head or there's no difference. There is no difference. So over the years, she's just learned that like, okay, in Paris, he's doing the same thing. He's 
coming home late at night, waking up, having breakfast, going back to the studio. I'm we're trapped in four walls, you know. So it doesn't matter where you're at. You could be, you know, Jamaica and Kingston making a record. You could be in Paris. You could be in Germany. You could be anywhere in this world. But the reality is, is that I'm there doing a job, and maybe you have this Sunday off, you know, the weekend off or something, and you're kind of like. Uh, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to sit on the couch and watch TV. <laughs> yeah. So there's been some sacrifices that have been made uh, with my family, which is, um, I mean, it's a little bit narcissistic in a way. I think when you're in this business, there's some narcissism in it because, you know, you are doing what you love to do. I mean, you know, again, I lie to my wife every time when I wake up and go, I'm going to work, babe. I'll see you later. This is not work. <laughs> yeah. I've been very lucky. I think of a, a lot of other people who have nine to five jobs. And I think of people who are digging ditches in the street. You know, that's real work. That is real work. Uh, people who, you know, uh, can't travel because they're stuck to their job. I mean, my hats, I salute those people. Those are real hardworking people. What I do is not work. It's different. A different kind of work, a different kind of mental block, but not not physical hard labor like that. Yeah, man, I tell you, we, we had a fence installed recently after, you know, we talked about it for 10 years and we finally, you know, yeah. got it together and, and had the fence installed. Fencing's expensive. But man, when those guys showed up and they were here for days, just you saw them out there working their ass off. And I just thought, you know what? Any kind of gripe I got about anything I'm doing, those guys are really working their asses off. And I'm in here sitting at a computer Really, how hard could it be? Yeah, really. Yeah, I had this, uh, something very similar. It's so funny. Um, I had a uh, I had three palm trees in my backyard that got hit by lightning. All three. So they, they, yeah, it was the wildest shit, man. They even lit on fire for a second, but it was raining, so they got put out. But they died, right? You know, I called this guy to come over, and I told him, "Hey, man, we want to take these these palm trees down." And he was like, oh, "Okay." He was like, uh, "That's going to be about a thousand dollars." And I was like, "Ugh." You know, my wife was on me about it for a long time. So they were just like dead trees back there that she hated the way they looked. So I was like, all right, all right, man, thousand bucks. They come over on a, on a Saturday morning one day and, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm literally just like, okay, I got up and they got here earlier than they said they would. And, you know, I'm cleaning the crust out of my eyes and shit. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I literally go take a shower. By the time I got done taking a shower and came out, they were done. Whoa. They had cut down these trees in 15 minutes. And I was like, I'm in the wrong business, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> they made a fucking grand in 15 minutes. I mean, these guys came in, climbed them up, chop, 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 chop. I have cameras to see the back of my, my, uh, so I watched it after those guys came in, knocked it out. And I was like, wow, those are professionals, you know? And I, and again, hard work, but those guys are good at what they do. You know, it is interesting when you observe other professions where people just come in and knock it out. Um, we're doing, a, we're turning a shed in the backyard into my wife's new office to free up a bedroom here in the house. And my father-in-law and I, we we redid all uh, a bunch of the framing to move a door and such. But when it came to drywall, my neighbor was giving me grief. He was just like, "How come you don't get in there and do that drywall?" And I said, "Because I want it done right." And man, yeah, hired this crew and they came in and boom. Knocked it out, yeah. looked amazing. And I was like, that yeah. would have taken me a week, if not longer. And I would have spent another week just trying to fix all the mistakes. Yeah. Know your limitations. <laughs> know your limitations. And it makes, it really kind of puts, you know, a, a, a different spin and perspective on 
what we do and the whole thing. It's just gives me a different appreciation and, and a different perspective. Even though what we're doing, some people, you know, think of it like I had a, a kid come with me one time, a friend's, again, my mom hooking it up was like, oh, this kid wants to learn how to do this stuff. So I was like, all right. I had him come in and hang out with me on a record. And that kid was like, I'm fucking bored as shit. <laughs> I was like, I went, yeah, this is not for you, right? He was like, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> You know, and he was interested in music and other stuff, but, you know, it's not for everybody. If you're listening and you think you want to do this uh, and you discover that you don't by way of what Robert is saying, like this kid in the studio, it's okay because yeah. it's better that you identify what it is you don't want to do so you can quickly yeah. find it, find out what you do want to do. Yeah. So Even after all these years of making records, you know, I do, I do some film work. And television stuff with uh, my, well, he's like my brother, a composer named Tyler Bates. He's the godfather of my oldest. And um, he does a lot of films, John Wick, Guardians of the Galaxy, big, big movies, you know. And uh, I'll work with him on these projects. And even for myself, it's like just taking a break from making records, you know, to do these things is so important. It's like sometimes it's just a different perspective, and he'll be like, hey, I just need you to mix some stuff for this uh, movie stuff. Or, you know, we're going to go and track some. It's all great. It's all the same thing. But, you know, could I see myself doing that all the time? No. The, 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 I, I like to dip my toe into it a little bit here and there. But, you know, I, I'm a record guy. But uh, there's so many different options now with making productions. I had a friend who just, just got out and started doing podcasting. Uh, not not podcasting, but uh, uh, packages put putting together setting up their sound system so it sounds good and we'll come in and set people up. And he's gotten a few gigs where he's now like the on the engineer that comes in and he does different podcasts and he comes in and sets it up and makes sure it works. And they were like, Hey, well, can you stay? And now it's been hired to help with the podcasting, you know? And, and, you know, he's like, I love it. It's like, it gave me, it's my third act. It's like, I love it. Uh, just like, you know, just no responsibility to a certain degree. And I, you know, I just make sure it sounds good. And it's like, so there's, there's audio jobs all over the place. Oh, hell yeah. You just got to, you know, put your mind to it. If that's what you want to do, go do that. You know? Yeah. I get hired sometimes to do consulting things and, and I'm like, yeah. yeah, sure. I'll do it. Just, you know, this one-off kind of thing here or there, or, or maybe a live sound gig here and there. But at the end of the day, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do all that for a living. Uh, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do these little things, but then at the end of the day, I come back to, you know, mostly, you know, mixing or mastering and, and keeping and it And you that. know what you want to do. That's yeah, right. That's, that's an important thing. Know, know where your strengths are and know what you want to do. You know, uh, you know, when we were young and we were in a band and we saw everyone else become famous except for us, <laughs> <laughs> we were like, yeah, I think we all, we're not as good as we think we are. And that was a good, good lesson for me. Because that's how I got into this business, you know. Well, Robert, do do you have a website? Uh, is there a place people can find out more about you? No, I don't have a website. I, I, I um, people usually just reach out to me from Instagram or um, Facebook. I still have Facebook. I don't know why, but I still have Facebook, and you know, I probably still have a MySpace somewhere. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, people just. I mean, you can find me if you need me. Okay. You know, well, I'll put your Instagram like, information in the show notes for those that want to reach out to you. Um, yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Such great thoughts here. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on my show. It's great to have you. Yeah. 
we didn't talk about a compressor or anything once. That's amazing. Well, we did though. <laughs> we we talked about you know Rev F and well, we didn't talk about the settings. That's right. <laughs> what is the best kick drum setting on a Rev F? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, man, great to hang with you and chat. Yeah. And uh, I look My forward pleasure. to, to uh, hanging out with you and Caesar in the future in person. I We were actually somewhere together. Wait, we were, to, I think, an, were we at a bar together? Yes. Um, in uh, Anaheim for the NAMM show, I think. A- Andrew Schatz was there. We were all, we were all kind of hanging out and it just, I, I saw you and I actually went, was, I'm not the kind of guy who's shy to go say hi to somebody. Uh-huh. It's like, you know. I don't give a shit. He's like, you're a person. You're, I'm a person. But I was walking towards you and someone grabbed my attention. And then that, you know how that is. Yeah. You have a fucking half an hour conversation. And then I, then I was like, oh shit, I got to get out of here. I had to leave. Yeah. Yeah. So we had that missed opportunity at that point. But, but I, I think I remember the bar in particular and uh, well. Yeah. Okay. It was just around the corner. Yeah. yeah. But anyhow. We right. Hopefully we'll be able to do that soon someday. Yeah, absolutely. Well, definitely next time. Thank you again. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Robert Carranza here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, remember, we are on social media. Check us out at Instagram, Working Class Audio with underscores between all the words there. Come on over and join the conversation there. Also, if you have a guest suggestion, don't hesitate. Put it, Drop it into the guest suggestion form that is located at workingclassaudio.com. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical Mr. Chuck Smith. He's so magical. <laughs> Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.